Hello and welcome to Breakfast with the Boss, the podcast that discovers how our leaders went from the classroom to the boardroom and what it means to be the boss. I'm Natalie Campbell. And I'm Martin Dixon. And this week we're taking to the skies. Joining us for breakfast is the CEO of EasyJet, Johan London. Johan was born in Copenhagen and grew up on the eastern coast of Sweden. As a keen trombonist, he had plans to pursue a career in classical music, but decided to enter the travel industry instead. He worked for a number of Nordic firms before joining the travel giant TUI, where he worked in various departments before becoming the managing director of TUI Travel UK and Ireland. He then became the deputy chief executive of TUI Group in October 2011. After six successful years at the helm, Johan took over from Carolyn McCall to become the CEO of EasyJet. Johan, thank you very much for joining us for breakfast. Run us through your typical morning routine, Johan. Oh, the typical morning routine. Well, I mean, what, what's uh, typical about that is that it's not, uh, it doesn't follow any, you know, patterns mm-hmm. f- from from uh, uh, from a planning point of view. Um, I, uh, you know, on the weekdays, one or two days, I'm in the head office in Luton or one or two days I would be in, in the city, in London, or one or two days I would be out traveling in the network. So that depends a little bit then about you know when you get up in the morning, because mm-hmm. if you're traveling in the network, you, you're taking most usually the six o'clock flight, which means you're getting up at you know uh, hideous times around four <laughs> o'clock, and then you know the time from when you get up to actually leave the house is as short as, as possible. And on the days where you take to the skies, are you... Uh, just testing out what it's like to be an, an EasyJet passenger, or are you behind the scenes? No, I mean, I, I, uh, you know, when I travel with us, I mean, uh, I, it's it's part of me traveling. It's also meet the team, it's mm-hmm. meet our people, the the cabin crew and the pilots. So I always uh, make sure that I get some some time and and say hello to them and speak to them and also speak to our pilots. And it's a great way, you know. I I do this, you know, two three times a week. Uh, you you get a sense and you get a feel, you know, very quickly about you know the. The, the you know the looking at the customers looking at the behaviors and and uh, so I try to not just sit there and prepare for my other meetings but mm-hmm. actually look at the whole experience uh, and and see what you know what are good what are things we can improve upon so it's really living your your you know your your product and your brand mm-hmm. and and that's a fortunate way of doing it so take us back, you were up on the eastern coast of Sweden. What was life like for you? Yeah, and I was actually born up in the northern part of Sweden in a, a small place called Skellefteå. Uh, and then I moved down to um, an even smaller place in the middle of Sweden called Härnösand. But I moved to Stockholm when I was uh, uh, 17. Uh, but, you know, it, it's up north, northern part of Sweden. There was, uh, uh, you know, my, I had a typical, you know, average way of I think growing up I you know uh, got involved in music very early on and decided from very early age that I wanted to to spend my time with music um, and uh, and for some really weird reason a bizarre choice of instrument I decided to become a trombone soloist um, so um, so my, my time up there was was pretty average and, and you know sports and, and music and, and school why the trombone? I, I've been wondering that. I know, I've been wondering that as well, in, in hindsight. So, so here was the thing, that when you, when you lived up in Sweden, by that time, and this is now in the 
you know, end of 70s, uh, the Swedish government, and I think it was more about <laughs> the socialist way of how Sweden was at that point of time, they had also quite broad programs about, and this was a good idea, I think, that where they took... Uh, like symphony orchestras and, and theater companies from Stockholm, from the capital, and they toured around Sweden, probably to get us who lived up there a little bit of sense of culture, a little bit of sophistication, <laughs> I guess, you know. And I was, um, so I was in one of those concerts when I was uh, uh, 11 years old, and I was sitting there with my, my mother, um, and, uh, and they had one of the larger orchestras then, and there was a trombone soloist. Mm-hmm. Uh, whose name is Christian Limber, who then become uh, become a trombone teacher and actually now is a good friend of mine, um, who who was there and he played and it literally blew me away. Mm-hmm. I was sitting there in the in the theater hall up in this town and my mother there and I was just like five six meters away from him with this massive symphony orchestra and I I remember I, I took the arm of my mother and and I just said that's that's what I'm gonna do that is exactly what I'm gonna do. Now, the problem, of course, with that is that, you know, I mean, trombone. Uh, I don't know how many albums or CDs you have <laughs> of trombone music at home. Because if somebody would have told me about, you know, the normal demand and supply <laughs> you know, rule about trombone music, uh, then, uh, then I've, I don't know, I wouldn't have probably chosen a different instrument. But anyway, so I, I, I managed to borrow a trombone and then later I, I got a trombone. My mother bought me a trombone. And then I started practicing, you know, three hours per day, whether that was on Christmases or birthdays or every day. And, and the idea was to become a trombone soloist, yeah. And so at what point did you go from being a trombone soloist to deciding that you were actually going to work in the travel industry? Oh, I remember that really clearly because I was then, I studied here in England, actually, and um, uh, on scholarships, and I was also in the US. And the aim was that I was going to make... Um, an audition at the Royal Academy of Music in Sweden because they had a musician line on trombone and that was regarded as one of the best uh, really program for, for, for uh, trombone players within classical music mm-hmm. and I didn't make it you know, I did the audition I remember it was on a Monday and I found out on the Tuesday you know you go to the board where they hang up who, who made it and I didn't make the audition and that was quite devastating because I had spent and invested you know really all my time in, in this and this was the plan so I um, I uh, the day afterwards I I actively sold I had three trombones by then I actively sold two trombones I went with them wow. to a music store and I said just give me whatever this is worth and then um, and, and it was quite a you know a, a, a traumatic moment for mm. me at that point in time but then I, I, I same week I, I sat down in a cafe and I remember I said okay what do I like to do and I like people and I like to travel and if you put those two things together it becomes like the travel industry mm-hmm. and uh, and at the side so, so I had that in my mind that this is what we're gonna do and the similar just a couple of days later, there was an ad in the in the paper in Stockholm where, where uh, a company called uh, Free, um, it's a cruise company that was part of what is now the Tui Group. They were looking for um, people to be on board, like uh, stewardess on board this cruise ship between Stockholm and what was then Leningrad, later St. Petersburg. And um, and I thought, well, actually, because I had a background with with music and I knew Russian music, you know, I, I knew my Rimsky Korsakov, uh, you know, um, uh, Rachmaninoff, so I kind of knew that and I thought, well, hang on here, I, I know quite a lot about Russian culture as well, so I, perhaps I could make a, 
uh, a case that they could take me on then. And then uh, I then, <laughs> well, I have to tell you this that I'm, I'm coming clean on this because what I did, uh, I I actually went up to their office. Mm-hmm. Uh, to the head office and pretended that I was there for an interview, which I actually <laughs> hadn't been called upon. But in Sweden, if you're from the northern part of Sweden, uh, people tend to believe you. You come across as a little bit slow, uh, but <laughs> trustworthy. So I, I guess that was one way I was using that little bit. And, and I took on my dialect and I said, I'm here for the interview at two o'clock. And said, well, we, you know, we, we don't have you here in our papers. We are looking for you know, people on board a ship because I've seen that in the paper, of course. Well, I said, look, I come all the way down here now, so you better, you know, okay, mm-hmm. well, you get to see somebody from HR. And then I did this interview with HR and the person. And, um, uh, and she said after that, well, sorry, we lost your papers, uh, <laughs> but we'll give you a test cruise. You can go on a test cruise with others. And if you make it there, we'll put you on there. So I did that and I came out of there. And first of all, I felt, you know, thrilled because I managed to get this. And then it just struck me that I lied myself into the interview. <laughs> so, so I felt so bad about that. So I called her up, the HR person there. Um, you know, the first thing I did the following morning to said, you know, the real story that I, I made this up. And she was, she was quiet for a moment. She laughed and she said, you know what? It's too late now. I'm going to bring you on anyway, you know. Um, so Take us to your first day on a cruise ship. What was it like? What happened? Oh, I mean, it was terrifying because for some reason, then I managed to get that land that job because she, we did a number of exercises on this test cruise and, and uh, I managed to, you know, um, pass them. And I was the only one there who didn't speak Russian mm. because in this time, this was, uh, you know, uh, about 86 around 86 so I think this was just before the wall had come down so you had the the population and the customers on board that cruise ship was a lot of Americans mm-hmm. and because of the tension and the cold war that existed you know these were Americans who were quite terrified of going there mm-hmm. and this was quite rough you had you know guards there and the KBG were you know watching where you went quite obviously so one of the key things that the guides had the stewardess who was on board there uh, was that they had to speak Russian so the people that they had picked outside me usually had been into the military and worked as interpreters so that's the way that they had got in there because knowing Russian was you know a a really big thing now I didn't have that I I had the other things about you know the Russian culture and 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 so on as well so I was terrified about that and um, and I I might tell you this story because I think it's actually a, a funny story so I said to the team there that look I am pretty nervous about this because what you had to do is that you had to when people got off the the ship you then went into these buses and then you did city tours as an example but the Russian the, the Soviet authority was provided the local guides mm-hmm. so you couldn't do any guidance so that was all right but of course you know whereas all my colleagues they spoke Russian and they could communicate with the guy there I couldn't do that, um, so I was just uh, and I, you know, had this thing about oh, you know, I should be able to do something on that, and um, so I, I was terrified, but it worked out okay anyway. Did this um, give you some early lessons in the importance of customer experience, customer mm. satisfaction? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that the one thing that was so so uh, clear about this one was also the customer expectations. I mean, this was like there were customers who'd been saving, you know, money for 
years, I mean 18 months, 24 months to do this trip and they were so excited you know and this was just going to take place now within a week and i think if you're looking at you know how people go on holidays today i mean this is for many people the most important week of the year Mm -hmm. so all the expectation that builds up and you got to make sure that even if you're running a company who has you know millions of these customers that each and every one of these customers has massive expectations so you better get that right because if you don't get it right, it's not only that somebody's going to be upset with you on that day. This is actually ruining, ruining you know, something that they've been building up for you know, up to two years. Yes. And so while you were living life as a tour guide, then it seems like there was a, a quiet ambition in you. You know, things just moved on. I, I, I've been lucky in all my life to have had you know, bosses who, who, who always supported me to take the ne- next steps. So, you know, um, so I started working as a, as a representative for a company, a, a sales representative dealing with travel agencies mm-hmm. uh, for a tour operator who was owned by SAS by that time, the airline. Mm-hmm. Um, and this company, uh, I lay, you know, after five years in there doing the sales and then marketing and then yield, I become managing director of. Uh, so I was 29 years old when I had my first MD job and that was a big you know, big size companies. Mm-hmm. Um, but that wasn't a plan, really. I ne- you see, I never had a career plan. I never mm-hmm. thought of myself um, uh, to say, you know, okay, I'm gonna do that, and then I'm gonna do this, and then I'm gonna do this. I think I'm a little bit tainted by the experience of the music where you're setting yeah. up yourself an early goal at that <laughs> age, and then if that falls apart, it's a lot of thing that, you know, also mentally, you know, falls apart. So I. I really worked from the start because I, I thought this was fun and it was meaningful and I, I can make a difference. Um, and then it's, it's just moved on. And so a life in the, I guess, in the tour industry, in giving people wonderful, wonderful experiences. You were MD um, UK and Ireland of, of Chewy and then moved to deputy CEO of the group. What was the difference in those roles? Because most people won't know, they just think you you, know, you run a company and there's a similar name, but I'm sure there was a, a significant difference. Yeah, there, wa- there was a, yeah, there, of course there was a difference in it. I mean, like you said, I was MD of UK and Ireland uh, in 2009, but at the same time I'd been then CEO of the two Nordics business, as an example, I have had responsibility also for two in Russia and Italy and, and Canada. So I had done multiple countries, you know, before, but uh, of course, the, 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 and the UK then become um, another part of that, that region that I was running. Uh, so, uh, so when I then became group deputy CEO, that means that I had all the source markets underneath myself. Um, which, which uh, and I think 44,000 of our people reported into my organization um, and, and all the six airlines and the number of tour operators we had. So I kind of done that on, on a smaller version within the job that I was doing because that's the job of MD of, of Thomson and, and to UK. I already had the, the Nordic part and, and Canada and, and, and Russia reporting into myself. So, um, but, and I knew the people clearly who, who my colleagues and I knew the, 
the people that I had on the board. So it became quite easy in, in that way. And we all quickly agreed upon what the you know, success factor should be. And, and we created relatively quickly a plan on, on what we should take out of all the business that we thought was, was really working and put it into one context. We had a discussion on what we should centralize. We had a discussion on what we should decentralize. Mm-hmm. And um, then you basically need to come together on that plan. And then it's about execution. You know, 20% is strategy and 80% is execution. Indeed. Is there anything distinctly different in the UK and Irish markets to other markets in Europe in terms of what people hope for in their holidays? Uh, yes, there are differences in there. It, it's uh, it's wrong to say that, well, you know, everything is uh, is uh, exactly the same for all the markets. There are differences in, in, in behaviours. There are differences in in um, you know uh, if you go to a hotel or if you choose apartments if you like all-inclusive or if you want to have just breakfast so you can go out and discover uh, things in there um, but they're not and it also depends on 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 the, the the level of the hotels the more you go into the five-star areas uh, the customer clientele you're getting has less of differences in in what they want because they are usually quite international, they've been traveling around and they're usually, you know, uh, quite focused on the things that those five-star hotels can offer. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're going down to more of a three-star level, then you come into bigger variances about, you know, um, on, on the behaviors. But, uh, but I mean, the similarities are, are, are more, you know, are the dominant part of it, but one should be aware of the differences. And particularly if you're looking at Northern Europe, and you mm-hmm. take you know UK and Ireland and and the northern part of Europe as well. I mean, look, it, it's the weather is not great, <laughs> so it's a big really? thing. Really, it's a big thing about you know just coming and enjoying um, you know uh, a good week in in the sun. Mm-hmm. But customers' demands and expectations on 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 travel has you know increasing become higher mm-hmm. uh, and more demanding. And that is exactly the way it should be, because that means that you're progressing as an industry as well. Uh, what has the impact of social media been on the industry as, as you've gone through it? Because I guess travel was something you had you had literally had to go somewhere to see inside the five star hotels and live that luxury lifestyle, whereas now you can almost live it on a phone. Yes. Yeah. How did massive. that change the job? Massive. I mean, it, it's changed it massively. Mm-hmm. And I would say, you know, almost all, um, with some exceptions for, for the better. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fact that you now can, you know, uh, you can get, you know, live feed from, from hotels. Uh, mm-hmm. You can get um, experience the things that you previously trying to print in a brochure, mm-hmm. uh, which doesn't give you at all the same, uh, you know, kind of a relationship to that. And, and actually that part of that you know live picture live pictures is something that really makes a difference mm-hmm. the, the, because then you can position yourself and your imagination works yourself to say ah you know i can see myself there um, that has a bigger pull to it and is more effective on the media and then also the fact of social media in particular you know a good product will uh, resonate quicker with the larger audience and if you get it wrong that will resonate also very quick so it, it puts a lot of i think good pressure on organization that to up their game mm-hmm. because if you if you don't perform and if you're selling uh, you know experiences that is not up to the standard to the expectation the customer have boy they will you know they're going to tell you very very quickly and they tell the world about it so moving on in 2017 you take over from dame carolyn mccall at mm-hmm. easyjet what was your first day like? 
the first day was uh, started, uh, I think we started about four or five o'clock in the morning because I, uh, and it was very much de- dedicated on safety. Mm. And you know, meeting the people in the operation centers, going through safety briefs, uh, as, uh, as because that is paramount. That is the o- the overriding biggest thing and the focus for everybody at EasyJet, and and so it should be in all the airlines. But I do think that um, you know it's it's very much in, in the culture of this organization that you know first and foremost safety, safety, safety. Mm-hmm. Um, so I spent most of my time on on the safety drills. And also knowing the routines, mm. uh, and then I also got uh, I went to the uh, in, it was in Luton to the airport, and I got out and saw you know the the takeoffs of the first waves, and I met with our our crew, uh, spoke with them, um, and uh, yeah, that was very much the first day. Did uh, Karen have any words of wisdom to you on that first day? Yeah, I mean she I mean she's done a fantastic job on 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 EasyJet as well. So uh, you know I've been fortunate to coming into an organization who's really in a good position, and uh, and it's really about you know you know taking it from there and and moving it on and evolving it from where we've been. So so we had a good you know couple of conversations about uh, things that that uh, uh, that you know we that has been important and things that I should have known. So she's been quite helpful in that transition as well. More than advices, you know, you know, I think uh, uh, I have a long, you know, uh, you know, period in the in the industry as well. So so I, I think I know pretty much where, where I was in, with the company. And, and one of the things that is great about EasyJet is that it's, it's, a, it's a relatively quick, quick read. What mm-hmm. you think of it from the outside is very much what the company is on the on the um, uh, inside it is you know uh, customer centric it is uh, fast moving it is uh, it has an entrepreneurial spirit within it um, and you know when you're on board our aircraft it's quite an, you know an exciting things so i think that we do things that other airlines don't mm. and when you're coming into the organization a lot of those characteristics that you see from the outside as a customer are also characteristics you find within the company um, so it's reported that you took a pay cut to match um, the salary of your predecessor. Why did you make that decision? Uh, it was a it was an easy decision to to take. Uh, I was, uh, you know, I always been somebody who thought, you know, uh, that equal pay is, is absolutely, you know, it's not only important; it's a basic thing that you know, a basic hygiene factor that every company should adhere to. And I wanted to continue to put focus on those questions because that's what I've done in, in my previous career and that's something that's been important and that's also something that you know EasyJet has also been quite I think uh, um, uh, at the forefront of making sure in terms of you know driving initiatives or getting more feedback pilots in which is actually the biggest difference for for the pay difference we don't pay you know different for the same job we have you know a, a gender imbalance um, where where predominantly our pilots are male and they are higher paid compared to the rest of the organization so I wanted to drive those questions and I want to put focus on that and how does the world encourage more female pilots well I mean it starts uh, in, at the early age well f- you know that's how we see it we, we are noticing that the biggest issue here is that is the lack of role models mm-hmm. if you're if you're speaking to our pilots, and we did some research around this, uh, among our male pilots, uh, half of them had, by the time they were 10, decided that they want to become a pilot. Gosh. If you speak to our 
you know, our female pilots, the research we did on them, uh, hardly none of them had thought of this idea when they were 15. So this comes back to, and the ones who had then started to think about this, they had had a, you know, a father who was a pilot or an uncle mm-hmm. that they could relate into it. So I think that this is one of the, one of the uh, cases that sits very deep in the society, really, about the structural, about, about role models. So we are trying to work a lot with going out into schools and, and, and at an early age, and uh, whether that is on our website, and, but all the campaigns we're doing is around getting you know, younger schoolgirls to see this as, as a, a job, because it's a fantastic job. I was just thinking about your trombone moment where you, you saw someone playing and you thought, that's what I want to do. Do any of your female pilots come out and say hi before the plane takes off? Because I'm just thinking, you know, when I hear a female pilot over the yeah. tannoy, I, I listen. Yes. I listen to everything yes. they say. And when it's a man, I'm probably still reading my book. But a, a female voice, I stop and I listen. Yes. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And they do that. They do occasionally. We encourage them, them to do that. Uh, we encourage all our pilots actually to come out and, and, and it makes a big difference. And uh, But, you know, it's, it's quite scary. It, you know, I've been on a, a plane where we had um, both pilots were female. Mm-hmm. And, and they were sending in and greeting, uh, you know, customers coming in. And I could see, you know, the odd reaction from, from people when they said, you know, okay, so there's two <laughs> women it's who's going to fly the plane, still. you know. Yeah, it's and surprising. it's, uh, whereas, you know, I, I thought, you know, most people say, yeah, yeah, one, that, that's good. But, you know, it is surprising. Now, that's, that's perhaps making something too big about something that isn't there because it's just that, it, that it's unusual. Mm-hmm. But you know you can't help to think that it's it's really weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, yeah. And so thinking about the customer experience since you joined EasyJet, what sort of things have you brought in and implemented? Because you're now in a world where you're competing with the Airbnbs of the world. Mm-hmm. I, I really like the Lucky Dip option. Yes. When you go to the website, yes. you don't know where you might end yeah, up, exactly. but it gives you <laughs> options. Yeah. So what sort of things have you brought in? Yeah. I think I mean the companies had had been digitally positioned really you know in a quite advanced way you know before I joined in there so we're doing a lot of investments into data and, and technology and the digital and that w- that is one example as well uh, we are also focusing more on um, what we're going to do for holidays mm-hmm. so EasyJet holidays was launched in EasyJet before I came in there in 2015 but we're going to do more investments in that, that area mm-hmm. to create a direct relationship with the larger and the best hotels in Europe mm-hmm. um, and by doing that, we can also make sure that we have a more uh, uh, a better suited holidays product for our customers. We have a tremendous a lot of customers who goes on board our aircraft, who goes on, on holidays and, and on leisure. But we're not at all fully utilizing the concept of having uh, own hotel relationships that are targeted to their, to their needs. We're going to do more in there. Um, and I think that uh, another thing that we're, we're doing more of is looking also at the business passenger. Uh, we, we can see, for instance, that business, business passengers today have you know, different needs as well in terms of coming to the aircraft, uh, coming to the airport late. So we're looking into offering you know, fast tracks uh, on security, mm-hmm. uh, guaranteed to hand luggage on board, to just developing that product for the business passengers. And then also we're looking to really reinvest into the loyalty program. We have a loyalty program today, but we want to do more about that because I think that a, a company today needs to absolutely recognize and reward its most loyal customers. So this is really about you know taking things that we've already been doing, 
But the time is now right that to invest more in those things. And one should remember, though, that the core of EasyJet will always be the airline. Mm -hmm. to make sure that we provide a great experience, a fantastic value. We are consistently being awarded uh, prices to be regarded as the most value for money airline in the whole of Europe. And that's really what EasyJet is about. Um, and that's going to be at the core of what we do. But now is the time also to capture some of the other opportunities of the customers that we already have in our planes. But um, to what extent has the web and the things you can do on the web undermine that package holiday experience because you, you've got Airbnb out there, you can go to a hotel's own website and book directly. What is it that you can provide that the individual doing it themselves can't? Yeah, I think that we are in a fortunate position uh, that we actually own our content. You know, that you know the, the, the web has been, you take Airbnb as an example, they've been a disruptor for, you know, for hotels. Uh, and they also been disrupting some of the OTAs that is out there. Mm -hmm. uh, but I always felt very comfortable about working in an organization when you control your content, mm -hmm. whether that is your hotel or your, your cruise ship or your airline. Because if you're in control of your content, you can also control the customer experience. And if you control your customer experience, you have an advantage. If you are a distributor, which you know, a number of these companies out there would have seen being disrupted from other players. Yes. You, you, you're running a different game. Um, and I worked my whole life within travel about content-driven businesses. And the airline is no different from that because it is that customer experience that you can own and control and influence that really, really matters for me. So from that point of view, the web and the internet has just been a fantastic way because you can bring your content to life. Yes. You can showcase it, you can, you can make it available, you can engage with the customers much, much earlier more, in a more relevant way than you could do before. Um, and and I, I, you know, we have this view in EasyJet and I've been a strong believer and, and I'm driving that a lot internally to say that look, we got 90 million customers here. We should be able to have a unique relationship with each and every one of those 90 million. Forget about the customer segmentation, so you know the normal standard traditional seven ways of looking at a customer, because the problem with with those things is that you're getting into an average, mm -hmm. or oh, your average customer in this mm -hmm. clientele in this sector is like this. I don't know about you, but I still haven't met an average person in my entire <laughs> life. There is no such things. We all have different unique characteristics and, and, and individual traits. And that's what a company today through data and technology and digitally should be able to capture. Mm. Because you have enough knowledge about customer within the framework of privacy and, and GDPR to be able to communicate with the customers in a way that you know, he or she feels that is on, 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 on their terms. So that's what you can control. What about the things you can't control? So the Eastern Beast came in, yeah. that cost you eight million. I think it's one of the industries where you really cannot predict no. what's going to happen. A volcano one minute yeah. or you know, whatever Mother Nature yes. wants to do. How, how do you deal with that? You're, you're absolutely right. There are, there are things you can't control. What you got to be do, doing though is be prepared for it. So, and I think an airline, uh, almost by default, because of the absolute focus that exists on safety, mm -hmm. 
are are usually a well prepared for these you know for things that sits outside your control in any way and that goes through a lot also in the in the thinking about you know what what you what you set yourself up to focus on even from the board level looking at the various risks that exist where you know where you fly to uh, what can happen there from from um, uh, you know, from a social point of view, from a political point of view, from a military point of view, from a security aspect. So you all have a risk register that is very much alive. Um, but then you have things like um, fuel prices and how you mitigate that is that you hedge for the fuel. So you buy fuel further out. So you know that if fuel price goes up, you have time to compensate that by finding perhaps cost savings elsewhere or, or looking at your pricing in a different way. So so a lot of it is actually just be prepared. Um, and what about political disruption? So things like Brexit, where you yes. really cannot yeah. plan uh, an well, outcome? No, you, you can't plan an outcome. But in uh, with Brexit, at least there's been um, time for us to plan mm-hmm. <laughs> for what you don't know what to plan for. Mm-hmm. So what we've been doing is actually the planning for, for all eventual you know, scenarios that, that can take place. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that's what we've been doing. And, and we feel that we're quite, you know, we're quite far, far ahead in the process on Brexit. Yeah. And so what's the future? Because you are in a really good place. What are the, you know, what's the one thing you're focusing on? Well, the one thing to focus on is basically to be able now to offer more to the customers that, we, that we're having through these initiatives that I talked about. Uh, and the other thing is we, we want to continue to grow the company. We, I always had this you know, thing in my mind that um, uh, somebody told me many years ago how you should view yourself as a company and then you know that if that happens you really succeeded. So, and you could say that it's never going to happen. But you know, the fact is that if we weren't there, if EasyJet was, wasn't there and wasn't, you know, wasn't around, people would actually say, I don't have an option now. Mm-hmm. There's no alternative to this company because they did something that nobody else has did. So if you're trying to look for, you know, what my picture is on how differentiated you want to become, you know, that is the type of thing that I have in my mind. But of course, we want to be, you know, Europe's, you know, uh, you know, absolutely best airline. We want to be the airline there. There are people, you know, you know, just say that, look, there's absolutely no option here, an alternative. I'm going to travel with this company. So this podcast works in association with Speakers for Schools, the charity that provides inspiring talk from industry leaders to schools all around the country. With that audience in mind, what advice do you have for any young people entering the travel or aviation business? First of all, you're doing the right thing. <laughs> you should go into travel, you should go into aviation because it is a growing industry, it's a, it's a fast-moving industry, it's an extraordinarily exciting industry. Um, and, uh, you know, if you, like myself, if you, if you like the relationship and engagement with people, I mean, you cannot go, go wrong. So, uh, you know, that, that is number one. So I would just say that you, you've done the right thing if you go into this industry. It's also an industry that is, is going through quite a lot of change. You know, so there will be pockets in here where you can actually make a difference mm-hmm. by looking at, at you know, where you would apply in here. I would always be, an, I'm a big believer of, you know, joining, you know, um, uh, companies that you admire. I always worked for companies that I felt very proud about. 
So I would say that look, go in. Don't be so you know red, you know disciplined about oh I have a career plan here. I'm going to do this for two years, then I'm going to do that for three years and four years. Look, you know, go in for companies and people in those companies that you like to work with, that you like to work for, mm-hmm. and learn. Be curious. Be you know. You know, work hard. It's it's one of those things because you got to work hard if you want to have a career. If you want to lead, you got to work hard, and you might as well do that with something you really think is fun. Have fun along the way. Enjoy yourself along the way, um, and and do what you're good at and and what you like. And lastly, the question that we ask all of our guests: If you could have one person from history join your board, who would they be and why? Uh, it's got to be Ingvar Kamprad from IKEA. Mm. Partly because he's Swedish, and mm-hmm. I, you know, I gotta, you know, promote a little bit of that. But you know, if you think about somebody who, who made a difference in people's lives, you know, who disrupted an industry, uh, focused on that value, focused on, you know, um, on, you know, people, you know, people on the streets, people that was it made the difference for a lot of people in their lives. Mm-hmm. That relentless focus on improving, mm-hmm. that relentless focus on trying and, and not be afraid to take risks, but always with the customer at the forefront of, of uh, whatever IKEA has been doing and doing it in an extraordinary innovative way. I mean, that, that, would, be, uh, that would be fantastic to have him on the board. Wonderful, thank you. But I do have a great board. Anyway, so <laughs> gotta say that as well. <laughs> Johan Lundgren, thank you very much for joining us for breakfast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Breakfast with the Boss. It was recorded at Fleet Street Studio with Vox Media Limited. For links to all our other episodes, follow us on Twitter at Breakfast with the Boss, or if you hit subscribe, you'll never miss an episode again. Until next time, goodbye.